from Cape Town. This is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to this week's edition of The Burning Issue. I'm your host, Yazid Kamaldin. Now, the killing of 16-year-old Nathaniel Julius outside his home in El Dorado Park, Johannesburg, on August 26th, allegedly by a police officer, has provoked nationwide anger and condemnation. Not only was this teenager unarmed, he also had Down syndrome. The South African Police Service says Nathaniel was killed during a confrontation between police officers and gang members. But eyewitnesses have a different account and say the body, the boy, sorry, had gone to a shop to buy food and that there was no gang shooting or violent activity at the time he was shot. A male and female police officer appeared in court yesterday and now faced charges of premeditated murder, defeating the ends of justice, discharging a firearm in a public space and unlawful possession of ammunition. Whether they will be brought to book, we will have to wait and see. But Nathaniel's senseless death has again placed police brutality in the national spotlight. A few months ago, we saw the brutal murder of Collins Corsa, who was beaten to death in his Alexandra home by South African National Defense Force members during the COVID-19 lockdown. And last month, a rubber bullet killed nine-year-old Leo Williams from St. Helena Bay. Leo was sitting inside his uncle's house watching TV when he was hit in the head as police clashed with protesters outside. And just recently, eight-year-old Clarence Solomons lost his life during a protest over a house demolition after being hit by a stray bullet of law enforcement. Now at the weekend, we saw a gender-based violence protest in the Cape Town city centre descend into chaos when police used excessive force on protesters. Why are we seeing a rise in police brutality? Have communities lost their trust in the police? Why is achieving justice for victims of police violence difficult? And what is the interlinkage between racial injustice and police brutality towards people of color? Those are some of the burning questions we ask tonight in Burning Issue. And in the program, we hope to look at several issues, including how the Independent Police Investigations Directorate deals with cases of police brutality and misconduct. We have a number of guests joining us this evening, and I'd like to now welcome our first two guests to the show. We have Imran Mukadam, a member of the United Public Safety Front, as well as Ghalib Khalant, Right to Know National Debt. Deputy Coordinator. Jens, good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Assalamu alaikum. Walaikum salam. Walaikum salam. Yeah, guys, by way of introduction, let's first talk about your organizations very briefly so that our listeners know exactly who you represent and what you do. Let's start with Imran. Imran, can you please tell us what is the United Public Safety Front? Um, United Public Safety Front was formed uh, two years ago. Um, as a coordinating structure for um, government, uh, non-governmental organizations and structures, neighborhood watch structures and CPFs to have an alternate voice outside of the, the normal channels um, and to be a 
a coordinating structure that can look at the issues of public safety on a much broader scale, um, especially in the Western Cape at the moment. Thank you. And Rali, can you please tell us very briefly what is Right to Know? So the Right to Know uh, campaign um, has been around for its our 10th year this year. Um, and we, uh, one of our focus areas is on countering repression and securitization, specifically related to um, surveillance uh, by the state and private actors, and then on the right to protest. Um, and um, opening up space for um, people's voices to be heard. Um, and so we're very concerned about um, certainly coming out of the Zuma years and even continuing into the last two or three years, um, the increasing uh, repressive stance um, by our, particularly the security forces um, in South Africa. Okay. So, Ghalib, now obviously that means that you guys have been monitoring police activity, especially around force. Give us an idea of what exactly is going on. We've I've mentioned at the introduction of the program a list of murders, if I, well, alleged killings People have died at the hands of police brutality. What is the situation like from your perspective at Right to Know? So, I, I mean, I think it, the, the, this is a really complex um, issue, um, just to say that up front. Um, each of the situations that you, you, you mentioned um, also had their own dynamics um, in, in them. So it's hard to extrapolate um, and and uh, draw um, a, a common cause, right? Um, except um, to say that probably we're dealing with a legacy of um, a really untransformed police um, service. Um, so many of the apartheid-era police officers um, are now relatively senior and so when you look at the what happened at St. Helena Bay um, and the police actions there it really was a throwback to how they've been operating even in the last 20 years um, dating back um, to before democracy 94 um, so you you still have remnants of that in the police force and, and so in uh, and the sense of a police force rather than service um, so that's, I think, one aspect. So um, ill-trained um, police officers um, or police officers that ignore, for example, the national um, uh, instruction on crowd control and, and um, dealing with protest actions. So drawing your, your sidearm is not allowed, um, for one, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, And then, of course, we've had also um, in this. So all of the cases that you mentioned have the additional complication of the COVID-19 national lockdown regulations, which has also um, made illegal, essentially, or unlawful, at least, um, public protest actions. So what that has meant is that the, um, the protections that are there slim as they are in the Regulation of Gatherings Act, for example, um, don't apply. And so what we saw at Parliament, for example, was police stepping in quite quickly to disperse what they considered an illegal gathering because the mechanisms for making that illegal peaceful protest um, 
are just aren't in place because of the regulatory framework. Thanks, so, Caleb. So, Thanks. So you're dealing with mm-hmm. a number of different factors. Yeah, thank you. So, Imran, I really am trying to understand the uh, police activity, right? So, what do you think is at the root of the problem, Imran? Well, well, I think these, as Khalid says, there's a lot of contributory factors, and uh, it's very complex to try and unravel exactly what is the root cause of police violence. And not only police, we, we, we're seeing a lot of violence on the part of law enforcement. We're seeing the outsourcing of, of law enforcement to private security companies that's also being um, uh, quite uh, violent with especially eviction. So, so yes, we, we, we're dealing with a very violent um, and repressive um, policing framework. And I think um, it's really doing a lot of damage to our democracy and to our understanding of the, the trust relationship between police and communities. Now, at community level, um, this breaks down every effort by communities to to build uh, community structures such as neighborhood watches and CPFs and so forth. So we finding, especially in that space, it's very difficult to work with police um, because there's just too much fragmentation of the different uh, units that, that, that is able to respond to, for, for instance, a, a protest scene, there would be law enforcement, there'd be public order police, there'd be the local police, there'd be um, traffic and other, and nobody is able to, to handle a, a protest situation effectively because there's too many um, uh, structures with no real um, center of command. So, so this is, in, in, in protest situations, um, it's, it's impossible for those responding to the protest to be well coordinated if there's so many responding and the people on the ground and the local police aren't given uh, an opportunity to negotiate first. And we saw this in, in the range and Epping Forest last week where uh, young Clarence Solomon was killed. We, there was actually no negotiation. There was no um, opportunity given to try and restore calm when the community became, community became um Violent mm-hmm. and um, or even just protesting and burning tires, and police started shooting without warning, without uh, a process. And obviously, in a gang-infested, crime-infested area such as the range, where we know there's a proliferation of of, of firearms, um, and which is a gang, gang stronghold, where um, retaliation from the gangs okay. themselves. Yeah. And what this does, what this does, just is it it, it it sort of gives the gangs the authority to run a parallel state within our communities. So one of the things that we're concerned with as the United Public Safety Front is specifically the failure of the state to win over the trust of communities through the repressive and violent um, response to crime and civil protest. Okay. Look, I mean, I think what we also need to understand is that uh, the the attitude of the police seems to be shoot to kill. I mean, I now want to recall a 2009 statement by Minister Becky Kelly, who said that, you know, police officers, he actually instructed police officers to shoot to kill and quote unquote worry later. I mean, do you think that that is the prevailing attitude in the police force? Either guest can answer. So maybe if I just... Um, step in there. I think that that um, 
attitude does pervade the the SAPs. Um, and so certainly one of the things that we've been calling for is the demilitarization of, uh, of SAPs. Um, so you'll be aware that in SAPs at the moment, you've got a ranking order that really follows a military rank. Um, in the early days of democracy, we moved away from that. Um, it was much more what uh, Imran is talking about, community policing um, forums and uh, community policing, so that um, police stations became community centers, uh, service centers. Um, but we've, I think we've lost that. So we've got a Krachtdardige approach from particularly the top brass um, in, um, in the in SAPs. The minister particularly is very vocal and cowboyish. Um, but also don't forget that even when the SANDF generals appeared before parliament, they um, also exhibited the same kind of attitude. Um, uh, so um, when we had Collins Causa being um, shot and killed uh, inside his property, that was also SANDF, again, with their command and control structure, not understanding their policing function. Um, and and treating uh, civilians, in that case, as belligerent. And so that militarized thinking um, is what I think think we see on the ground. And so protesters are seen as belligerent um, in the first instance. Um, There's a demonization of protest and a criminalization of protest particularly in the last um, six months or so under the COVID-19 um, regulations also. Mm-hmm. Imran, what do you think about this idea of the shoot to kill? Well, under, under Becky Chelly, basically when he was commissioner of police and now when he's minister of police, um, he, he has come in with his gung-ho approach and he reinforces that within the, the top structure and um, within police junior structures, um, there is this um, sort of thinking that there's no consequence for the actions. And, and you see the consequences of that is the, um, with the militarization also goes the, the, the cooperation of the community. And you see, you see um, communities becoming very much um, opposed to the police instead of working together with the police. We find that in our structures, for instance, Mohalib um, has mentioned COVID. One of the first things that Minister Becky Chele said was that CPFs and neighborhood uh, structures are non-essential functions. And we were, we were left out in the cold for the first two months of the, of the COVID when it was at its height and where we could have made the biggest difference in terms of crowd control and ensuring social distancing. And we were just left out and we were not allowed to operate. And, and these are the kinds of um, decisions that breaks those within our communities that have the goodwill to want to make a change. It's, it's just taken away. And then the only way to get a, a ear um, becomes um, protest action. And similarly with, with uh, uh, municipalities like the city of Cape Town, for instance, um, it's easy for the mayor to say that uh, the community has blood on their hands. But if law enforcement and the city structures don't follow procedures and court orders and uh, the regulations specifically around COVID and evictions, then everybody's got blood on their hands because we are seeing this um, where they just blatantly disregard 
in the process and just go in and, and, and irrespective of what the protocols are, there's just no ways that you can stop the decisions to evict or the decisions to destroy people's homes. And in the middle of winter and in the middle of a pandemic that is having huge economic impact within the poorer communities. So our people are cold, they are hungry, and they are angry. And for that scenario, you need a sympathetic police force, you need sympathetic reinforcement, and you need to really be able to to, to understand the dynamics on the ground. And and there's a total disconnect. Thank you, Imran. Thank you. We'll go for an ad break. When we come back, we'll continue with this conversation. Imran, can you please tell us a bit about your own experience of police brutality? Um, yeah, we, we, we again, um, you know, I had a situation where I was being accused of, of some, some theft or whatever, um, of bread crates, which was done for competition issues and had absolutely nothing to do with real crime. Um, but there we found a um, flying squad responding to a, a very trivial um, situation. And when I basically I found our station commander to find out if they know about this issue, and um, he said that I've got no authority to be in the area. And um, when I told this to the police officers involved, I was suddenly arrested and I was put into a car. Locked in the car for 30 minutes without the windows even open, handcuffed behind my my, my hands behind my and up on my back, and I sort of experienced firsthand the kind of treatment that citizens, um, many times innocent citizens, have to endure um, at the hands of police officers that work outside of the jurisdiction, but also outside of a process where they can arrest you for. Um, just talking back to them and demanding um, them to show the identification, which in this case they did not have on them. And um, I was arrested, I was charged, I had to appear in court twice, um, all a wastage at the taxpayers' expense, something that could be um, resolved very easily um, with the phone call. Um, so, so we find this also um, aggravates the relationship between police and citizens, and many a times law-abiding citizens um, that are then at the receiving end of, of uh, police brutality, it changes their whole um, civic understanding and their, role of the, their own role within society. As, as, as those that want to make a difference, they become very antagonistic. Um, my colleague that was with me on, um, at the time, Shaman Greedy, was assaulted and, and basically slapped through the face by, by um, the, the policeman that arrested me when she started making a video. So, so yes, you find these kinds of, um, sort of you know, this, this total abuse of power um, really it breaks down um, people's trust. And we, we as community leaders, we try very hard. Even this afternoon I had an incident where uh, shots were fired at the shopkeeper by gangsters. Um, for protection money. We try very hard to work very closely with the police in order to make our area safer. 
Yeah. But the biggest obstacle right now is um, this, this police, and it's not all police, there are very good policemen out there, there's very good law enforcement officers out there, and there are many that are doing a sterling job. But there's a few that follow the lead um, and believe that there's no consequence. And that is one of the biggest issues. Is there's very often no consequence. Imran, please give me a chance to also yeah. ask questions of Ghalib. No, no problem. <laughs> yeah. Please keep, guys, please, let's keep the answers to the point. I, I appreciate all your feedback, but we also have some questions to get through. Khalib, are you monitoring the trust that community has in the police service? And do communities still trust the police? So what we have, what we are monitoring are um, the various protests um, in five metros. Um, here in the city of Cape Town, Etiquini, and the three metros in, in Gauteng. Um, and particularly the sort of underlying causes of the service delivery um, protest actions. Um, of course, during this COVID-19 uh, uh, period, we've also been looking at broader repression um, by security agencies. And so the, the net is thrown a little bit wider. What we haven't done is to survey um, the uh, community's relationship with with police. Um, Imran probably would be able to speak uh, more about that because uh, that's, a, that's a DOCS function, a Department of um, Community Safety and uh, Neighborhood Watches and Community Police Forums fall into that category. Um, but again, uh, we were talking about, maybe just to make one point here on the Cape Flats particularly, um, that the, the gang culture and what we saw in Elsie's River does set up a parallel security structure. Um, and so we mustn't also forget that there's that, almost a competing enforcement mechanism um, that we're also dealing with in places like El Dorado Park or on the Cape Flats. Um, and so that makes um, the, the situation even more complicated. Um, and so people will, if, you, if, you, if poor communities can't afford uh, private security, then often gangs play that particular role. Um, and that then complicates matters even more. Mm-hmm. I think what is important for us to understand as citizens is that we can take, there, there is a mechanism and there is recourse. And I want to leave also our, our listeners with an, a bit of an empowerment message. So, We've got the independent, we've got IPA, the Independent Police Complaints Directorate. Talk, talk to us a bit about that. Um, uh, perhaps, uh, Ghalib, if you can tell us, what can citizens yep. do? So, uh, so, a couple of things. One, um, so IPAD, um is overstretched and under-resourced. However, it is there as an um, oversight body um, that looks particularly at criminal activities by police officers. So we have a place to refer um, to. So um, so that's one thing. Um, and we need to make more use of, of um, that particular facility. Um, and we're also campaigning for greater resourcing of that oversight function, maybe moving it out of um, the Minister of Police's um, umbrella. Yeah, in the in the um, Western Cape, though, we also have a police ombud. So we're the only province in the country that has a police ombud, and that.
that um, office looks at maladministration within SAPs. Because you also mustn't forget, it's not just the violence and the direct violence um, that we are dealing with in SAPs. It's also, you know, the, the dockets that get lost, the, the way that people who are arrested are treated um, in when they are brought in, into a police station, in the holding cells, etc., etc. So um, the Office of the Police Ombud is also an important mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. role. Can I just say one last thing yeah. just about the Centralina um, Bay situation? Um, the fact that we had monitors on the ground, uh, we were able also to refer that particular incident to the South African Human Rights Commission, and that's now led to that particular SAPS office um, being uh, suspended, operations being suspended there, big investigation into the what, um, how those SAPS offices have been So it's um, good to know operating. that there, it's good to know that there's recourse. Citizens yep. do not just get killed by the police. They can also, look, Absolutely. we understand, as you said, that unfortunately IPED is overstretched and understaffed and all those things, so people might have to wait quite long for justice. Um, listeners, our listeners are always very interactive in the show, and listener 3249 says, <laughs> the people who issue the orders which are aimed against people of color should be held accountable along with the police officers. That's, of course, saying that the police officer who pulls the trigger should not only be held accountable, but also the persons who give those orders. Then listener 0115 says the guests should be policemen going into gang-infested areas on weekends in areas like Mannenberg, etc., where police get killed on a regular basis. Police makes mistakes because they fear for their lives. Now, I think we should say that police... Killing someone is not making a mistake. That is, be, that, that you can't put that down to a mistake. At least that is what I would think. I mean, if my family member had to be killed by the police and the police had to turn around and tell me that's a mistake, I certainly would say wrong. That cannot be a mistake. We are now going to go for the Shai prayer break. Listeners, do stay tuned after Shai for the program. Imran and Ghalib, shukran so much. Thank you for joining us this evening on Burning Issue. Thanks for having us. Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldi. Now, before the pre-break, we spoke to two activists on the frustration being felt on the ground with regards to police brutality and the lack of will by authorities to effectively tackle this within the policing system. Now, for the next 20 minutes, I want to uncover this further by understanding the role of the Independent Police Investigative Directorate, or IPID, whose mandate it is to ensure independent oversight of the national and municipal police service. Now, I had mentioned IPA during one of the interviews, or rather during the interviews before the break. And now we're going to welcome to the show IPA spokesperson, Dileka Kola. Dileka, good evening. Welcome to Burning Issue. Good evening, sir, and good evening to your listeners, and thank you for having us on board. Mm-hmm. So, Ndileka, what is so important for us to understand is the role of IPA, but also the role in its... In society, where it is about ensuring that police are held accountable for their actions. Is, I, is that the role of IPID? Indeed. The mandate of IPID is to, is to play an oversight role over the police. So it's an independent investigative directorate that, um, that, is, um, that effectively and independently and impartially investigates 
uh, the, the misconduct of um, the alleged, or, or to say the alleged misconduct of police officers, <clears throat> right? So we do so, and we are empowered by the IPD Act. <clears throat> And specifically the IPID Act, um, the Section 28 of the IPID Act, then on that Section 28 is where you get all the details of what uh, sort of matters that IPID um, investigates. So the first one, we, add, we, we investigate any death of a person that's in police custody. For example, if somebody, one of the recent cases you've had in the Mtualume Macha that you had to, to investigate, it was a police, it was a person that was in police custody, but that um, allegedly hanged themselves inside the police custody. We investigate such cases, that's number one. Number two, we, 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 we investigate death as a result of police action. So this could be because the police officer, for example, has assaulted the person or a police officer has shot at the person. This could be deliberate or this could be like one of those unfortunate incidents where someone just gets shot by accident. We, I'm we sorry. I'm sorry. I, I really just cannot understand how a police officer who is meant to be a professional shoots somebody by accident. Why? No, listen, listen, mm. listen. There are other instances where it's not a matter of, of negligence from the police. I'll give you an example, practical example. You've got uh, a community that is protesting and they're doing so and they're over the bridge, right? And you've got a civilian that is walking down under the bridge. And then the police in their duty, they're trying to disperse the crowd. And as they're shooting at the crowd with the intention of dispersing them, then they, they accidentally shoot at somebody that is just walking uh, along their way and they've got nothing to do with the protest. So it's incidents of that nature. Not like they were shooting at that person, so like they were targeting at that person. It's just a genuine accident. We've had another case. I'm giving you a second uh, scenario. Another case we've had recently in Gauteng. A police officer, police officers were actually in the van and they were discharging their duties, five of them in a police van. And as they were to chase the suspects, then one of the police officers that was sitting at the back accidentally shot her colleague. So that those are kind of accidents and incidents. I mean, that a that gun, a gun is something that you are trained to use. You know, I mean, is it a lack of training or what is going on? I mean, at the start of my show, I listed a number of people, especially young children, people under 18 who have recently been killed by the police. Last week, we saw Nathaniel Julius. We've heard about Clarence Solomons, an eight year old, nine year old Leo Williams. I mean, essentially, we need to understand that our police are going to be doing something about this to stop the killing, especially of vulnerable people in South Africa. Can you please tell us how does I I now deviate from from the the, just educating your listeners about what IP does and the mandate of IP? I think think the idea is to ensure the the listeners that they can count on the police not to kill citizens. Okay, maybe I would, I would prefer that we finish because people don't understand the money mm. of IP. And sometimes they think we deal with service delivery matter. Do you want us maybe to hold this question and then and then we, we come back to talk? Look, I, I don't I don't think we need to list every particular case that IP would investigate because this is a new show. Definitely, mm-hmm. definitely, it would take five more than more exactly. Than so I'm trying to <laughs> navigate into the news, which is people are being killed by the police. They need to be, the police need to be held accountable. Tell us what IPIT is doing in that regard. You told me in the break that you've just come from a case. Somebody has been arrested. Tell us about what IPIT is doing to ensure the police do not kill citizens. The mandate of IPIT is 
at the point where the police has transgressed of what is expected of them to do, we come in and investigate and, and, and find the, 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 the facts of around what um, transpired in that particular incident. So do you understand that the manage of IP to start at the point where a police has contravened the law? Got that. Thank you. Okay, here. What's happening around the current cases? Police officers arrested, police officers being investigated, recent killings. Please tell us what's happening to police officers. Give us an update. That's very broad. Maybe you want... To okay, specific that? specific cases. Specific cases. Nathaniel Gillis. Yes. Leo Williams. Clarence Solomons. These are the cases that have made headlines. Okay, with regards to Nathaniel Julius case, IPD has this evening arrested a third suspect into into this case. Last week on Friday evening, we we investigated two two suspects, and those two suspects appeared in court in in um, Protea Magistrate Court in Gauteng, and they're being charged for for murder. They're being charged for death as a result of police action. They're being charged for being in possession of the prohibited ammunition as well as defeating the ends of justice. And then they appeared in court, and uh, due to the nature of, of the due to the serious nature of the challenge of the charges that they are facing, then the, the magistrate advised them to both go and uh, and secure legal representation. So they are set to appear in court again on the 10th of September. Then, with regards to the third um, suspect that was arrested to, today, he is also um, from the same uh, area, which is uh, El Dorado Park. And uh, his, the charges are visiting uh, the ends of justice as well as being in possession of prohibited ammunition. So it's those two charges for him. He's a, he's a police detective, and he's set to appear before the court on Thursday, the 3rd of September 2020. He'll also be appearing in the same court, and that's Protea Magistrate Court. <laughs> so the investigation into these matters uh, continue, and at this point in time, this is what we we just uh, saying as IPs that we're doing our best. We, 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 we the investigation is going swiftly. We've had challenges in this case um, because then we were not informed on time, and as a result, and as well, the police that are alleged to have killed Nathaniel, they took the body to the hospital, and that uh, the IPs could not um, process the scene. But the IPs has since as a result of that such um, services of specialists and yesterday we had them going back into the scene to reconstruct the scene mm-hmm. working with IP as part of the investigation process. Yeah. Thank you for that update. Now before the break we had somebody from an organization called Right to Know and this person said that they believe IPIT is overstretched and understaffed and that is why not enough con- not enough uh, police investigation rather investigations into police are concluded. Is that accurate? Is that a fact statement by the Right to Know movement? What I, I would want someone from Right to Know movement to expand on what they are saying in terms of saying that IPIT does not finalize cases because IPIT does finalize cases. But there's one thing the communities ought to understand is that the period of investigation is determined by various factors. Those include other reports, for example, like ballistic reports that we depend on from external stakeholders. They include post-mortem reports that we also 
depend on, on health um, from the health department. They include um, cooperation by the victim, if the victim survived them, whatever uh, incident occurred. Also on eyewitnesses, sometimes family members. So if we, we, we struggle with cooperation from them, then it delays the process. Sometimes you must remember that law enforcement officers understand the law. There's one of the statements I issued today, and that case was reported to IPC in 2009. And this gentleman has been convicted last week, only last week. It's a long time. Because 2009 is 10 years ago. Time because remember, he understands the system. He's a police officer, so he's going to come and with all the sort of delayed tactics. Because remember, the, the, the suspects also have rights that have got to be... I don't, yeah, look, the, the, the legal said. process can take time, that we understand, but we just want to yeah. know, does IPIT have the resources to ensure that it investigates and holds police officers accountable when they kill or or do something to, to citizens? That is all we need to understand. Do you have enough people? Are you under-resourced? That was the statement that was made against IPIT. Well, like any other public institution, if you'd know and if you're following the trends, all, all public institutions do have financial constraints. And like all of them, IP is not, is not, is not immune to that challenge. But we, within the available resources, IP is doing its best to finalize its investigations and to, to ensure most of all that. Yeah. Uh, we focus on the, on, the, on the quality of our investigations and ensure that you bring justice to for the victims. Look, I need to ask these questions because citizens ask these questions. And in fact, we've got an open line, a WhatsApp line and a phone line. And WhatsApp messages are coming through. For example, listen to, and this is your opportunity to speak directly to citizens and their concerns. Listen to 2172, for example, says, why do we spend our tax money on training for the police officers if there are so-called accidents on duty. So they are basically the same as the gangster running on the street with guns and no training. That's a perception that a citizen has of the police. You do not need to respond to every of these questions. I'm just sharing the information with you so that you know, you know, when you're coming in as I, but these are the perceptions that you are dealing with, right? Listen to okay. mm-hmm, 3366 says, it's a good program. The iPad woman is making excuses for police killings. That's another perception. Listener 4704 says she's trying to cover up. Listener 521. <laughs> I'm just sharing it with you. I don't have time. I really would not have time to, to, to sacrifice my quality time with my family to, to, to cover up. I've got nothing to hide. Yeah. I'm doing my job, and my job is to inform the citizens of what IPD is doing. Yeah. Everybody is entitled, of course, to their opinion, but people mustn't make such such uninformed allegations. And that is why we have you here, to be able to share the work of IPID with our listeners so that you can address some of the misperceptions or perceptions that people might have of IPID and the police, you know? And then the last one that I want to share is from listener 73307. Saying, cops caught in Joburg in firearm license smuggling and two based Cape Town, two men based in Cape Town. So, I mean, you also do investigate when police are, 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 are allegedly involved in gun smuggling, right? Gun smuggling. Mm, if yeah. police are selling guns or in gun smuggling and somebody needs, I mean, this is also something you would investigate, right? Yes, and mm-hmm. as that person that is saying that, can they come up front and can you ensure that as you also have them accountable? to ensure that they report the allegations, the serious allegations they are making because we don't want community members that 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 are 
are quick to judge and say government is, 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 is defending. But what is their responsibility as a community? Is to participate, to ensure justice, you understand? So if he's got all this information, can he please make sure that as a responsible citizen, he comes, he comes forth, he reports that matter. And he becomes our key witness mm-hmm. to ensure that those people are held into justice and, and, and they're held accountable, I mean. Okay. And how do citizens, citizens also need to be empowered via our programs. How do citizens go about com- uh, laying a complaint against a police officer or reporting uh, what they might believe to be a police officer not doing his or her job? The, the easiest thing to do is to check, to go to our website, which is www dot ipid.gov.za and then there's a form that is, is available uh, on the forms there that uh, they can download and print out and and just write out the complaint and send it back to IPID via email to complaints at ipid.gov.za Okay, so it's all on the website. People can, can get yes. that on their phone or, or internet, etc. I want to now welcome to the show Daniil Knitzer and he's the editor of Viewfinder. Daniil, good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Hi, Yazid. Thank you for having me and yeah. uh, good evening to the listeners. Have you been listening to this interview? I have been, uh, the last section. Okay, what are your cha- what, are, what is your take on the challenges facing IPID? Now, I believe that you have done extensive research into IPID. What, are you, what, what, what is your take on the challenges that have been raised here about IPID? Um, well, yeah, on my investigation in a moment, uh, let me just say preliminarily, uh, the fact that IPID is chronically under-resourced is not questioned by anyone. It is unable to handle the ma- massive caseload on its active case role at the moment. Um, It's only got one provincial office and in many offices, sometimes it's got two. Uh, And that means that its investigators have entire provinces as their jurisdiction because investigative work requires uh, responding to scenes This puts a massive strain on on the directorate. Um, Another response to something that Ms. Trola said a moment ago is that IPID focuses on the quality of investigations. That's actually not entirely true when looking at the performance indicators by which IPID um, reports its its performance annually to uh, Parliament. What IPID actually reports as a success is how many cases it uh, completes or finalizes in a year. That means, um, as my investigation over a year in 2018, which was published uh, in October last year, showed that to make these performance quotas, IPID has uh, systemically over years and throughout the country prematurely closed cases, closed and completed cases without proper investigation. And what that essentially did is it obstructed justice for victims and it allowed perpetrators and the police to uh, escape accountability. So we've got a lot of focus on the case of Nathaniel Julies this, uh, this week in particular. But um, I'd like to remind listeners that uh, the South African police service are accused of killing on average one person a day in this country over the last 20 years, and that generally the conviction rate that um, is secured through IPED convictions, uh, through IPED investigations, is uh, around one to a hundred. Um, so the, 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 the question uh, begs, what, what is IPED doing currently around um, 
improving the measures by which it uh, measures its success. Let's ask that. And, Let's and ask that to the IPED spokesperson. And the second question is, what is IPED doing to improve its case management system? As uh, experts have uh, recommended that IPED should formalize prioritization to look at the most serious cases, to concentrate its limited resources there, and not to be pushing numbers and statistics through the case management system to tell a good story quantitatively at the end of the year. Well, we've got IPED on the line. They can answer. Impact. They can answer. And Dileka, the first question would be around, um, the, you know, you've heard the questions. What would the response be from IPED? No, I didn't write the questions. I don't have anything to write here. You want to run the questions by me? Okay, look, I think what's an important question is IPED prioritizing important cases. I mean, do yes, you... Yes, IPED mm-hmm. is prioritizing important cases. I am not sure what... Um, the caller means no, no. There's no formal. There's no formal case screening or case prioritisation mechanism within IPED standard procedures, and that has been a recommendation that IPED itself committed to in Parliament in February, and that is the last that we've heard of it. Daniel, let's hear from IPED. No, IPED, you have. Am I going to be allowed to respond? You, you are allowed to respond. Please do. The caller is going to go to town and not give me the respect that I've accorded them. Delika, you have the right to respond. You have the right to respond now. Okay. Um, okay. Thank you. You see, now I've lost my my my, my thinking process. So you were saying you were saying what was the allegation? You were There's an allegation that, that IPA does okay, not prioritize. If yeah. we are saying we're not prioritizing cases, why is it that we've got we've, we've already have got three suspects that that how is it that we've got three suspects? That are in custody as we are speaking now on the on the Nathaniel case. How does it happen that we, we have other because of media that, attention that we are able to 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 respond to swiftly, including the one that you're talking about of Cape Town, which is for Leo Williams, which is also in in advanced stages. Now the other question, Dileka, women's issues and and domestic and, and and women rape and all those other issues of of, of vulnerable people. We, 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 are, we are prioritizing them. There's a gentleman that is the police that within a space of two weeks, their investigation was finished. That apparent that allegedly raped an eight-year-old girl in Eastern Cape. He set to appear in court on Thursday. Mm-hmm. This, uh, this was reported to IP mid-August. So mm-hmm. what does he mean we are not prioritizing important cases when murder and rape of women and, 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 and killing of women is taking precedence? What, uh, which which, which um, uh, criteria would he have preferred I, I put it to you. Mm-hmm. Dileka, thank you. You've answered that question. Now, here's the other thing, though, right? After months of investigation in 2019, Daniel was involved in exposing IPED for closing cases prematurely to inflate performance statistics. And that is something that he alluded to. He spoke about just before this, right? Is it correct right. in saying that IPED closes cases prematurely to inflate performance statistics? Is that correct? That is, that is not a correct allegation. And my, it was my, proven. My, plea, my plea with him is that if he's got cases at hand, that he believes that they have been closed prematurely by IPs. Daniel knows, knows for a fact that we have a new director, and we are actually executive director, and we're actually set to have a meeting with Daniel when we, when we actually go to Cape Town. So what he can do is that if he's progressively concerned about um, the, the, the issues that he's bringing forth is to, is to meet with IPs and, and, and come with their progressive suggestions on how best this could be handled. Because this is not about uh, about Daniel coming on the stage and saying IP is not doing well, but it's about him as, as also adding value into the system and saying this is the 
resource and the information I have, this is the these are the suggestions. Having said that, uh, cases there's one thing you must consider is that there are many dependencies on IPID investigations. They are, we depend, for example, on ballistics. We have to wait. That we cannot conclude the case that we are still waiting for ballistic reports. For cases that we're waiting for post-mortem reports for, we have to wait for that information. When, 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 when... Do you know what, Mdeleka? With the state, yeah. We have to be patient with them. Over and above that, we send recommendations to, to SAPS for matters of, um, that, that pertain to employer and employee relationship. So we then it then it becomes it, it, it depends on the Deleka. Deleka, we understand we understand that there are processes. Yeah, no, before and, I finish, mm-hmm, before yeah. that, before before you you close, I must also you must also understand that we send the report to N, NPA. So there's also other cases that NPA has got their own challenges in the system. So I don't want him to <coughs> excuse me to not take into cognizance other other the context in which these are happening so they're not all the cases that have not been closed actually with ipid others have been have been transferred of others the reports have been sent to the relevant stakeholders okay dileka has now daniel dileka has said that maybe you should also make recommendations now let me ask you then what do you think needs to be done to ensure that ipid plays its role effectively as south africa's police oversight mechanism tell us in your research what you have found are the shortcomings and what they should do to improve their job let me just say at first that I think everybody supports IPID's mandate and everybody understands the challenges both from the police externally and also from the NPA that it uh, faces. This is not about um, attacking IPID. We all support IPID's mandate to hold police accountable. What we want to see is that that mandate is fulfilled to the best of IPID's capacity and ability within its available resources, which are massively constrained. Um, this is not about what I think. This is what about... Uh, about what okay, the experts at the, the the experts at the African Policing Civilian Oversight Forum uh, made in response to my investigation and findings, and those recommendations were essentially I boiled them down to two things. IPED needs to relook at how it measures its performance year on year to be more impact orientated on police conduct and accountability as opposed to the current system whereby as many as possible decision ready, what they call decision ready or concluded investigations are um, tabulated and then um, captured as a whole number or a percentage and presented as a performance statistic to parliament. That uh, performance measure needs to be re-looked at because it is conducive in an environment where quality control is difficult and constrained by resources. It is conducive to fraud at the provincial offices and to the premature closure of cases, which fails complainants. The second thing that IPID should do is it should look within its available resources to formalize the most serious cases against the police. Instead of seeing each case as one number to push through for its statistical performance, it needs to formally prioritize the serious rape, the serious murder, the serious torture, the serious assault, and the serious corruption allegations so that the limited resources can be concentrated on those while at the same time doing its due diligence for for less serious uh, cases. Those are two very simple recommendations that can be taken on in policy uh, with a political will, and hopefully that political will will be present with the new um, 
Executive Director. I know there's a lot of optimism around Ms. Nklatsing, and uh, time will tell whether she will um, uh, take the, the offer from the African Policing Civilian Oversight Forum who have offered to, to help consult and to see those two recommendations become policy because it's critically important for South Africans vulnerable to criminality and murder and assault and rape and torture by the police service that IPED looks within its resources to maximize its impact on police oversight and conduct and to uh, measure its performance to, to champion that impact through case prioritization. And those are just two things, but I mean, I'm sure there, there are many other, and um, yeah, I'm sure IPED would, would be able to speak to those. is something we need to understand from your side, Ndeleka, is what is the conviction rate of police officers found to be guilty of police brutality? To show, because in numbers we could see or we could measure, you know, whether police officers are in fact, you know, those cases are concluded, how many have been concluded, let's say in the last year or the last two years, if you like, and how many have been found guilty and not guilty? Give us an insight into the outcomes of your work. Okay, well, I... At this point in time, okay, before, before I, I, I respond to your question, can you please get your caller that has seriously made allegations of fraud? Can you please get him to just, cite, to just indicate if he as a responsible person um, has reported the alleged fraud he's talking about and he's brought evidence to IPIG so that this can be brought, so that the alleged corrupt, corrupt officials or that are allegedly doing fraud can be brought into book and this thing could come to an end. I'd like to establish from him that what, what has he done to ensure that fraud does not thrive in South Africa? What have I done? And then secondly, speaking about the seriousness of cases, I've alluded to this, that I could prioritize the women's issues. That those are people that are already vulnerable. The, 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 gent- the, the, the 16-year-old boy that is based, that is from, from Soweto, is a vulnerable person. Is, 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 you know, um, is, um, he's, he's a young person and he was um, with all the challenges that, um, that, that, that he has. As a result, that case is, is prioritized. Do you have Women's numbers? That's what I'm... That's a police what I'm... officer was arrested for raping a woman in Western Cape on Sunday. He was arrested... Do you have numbers? Yesterday. Do you so have numbers? Saying, no, I don't have the, the statistical information in front of me as I'm speaking to you. But what I will tell you is that our annual report, that is... Uh, I know that I've had few inquiries about the statistics, and I've been telling most of the reporters that our annual report is currently going through audit process. And once, it, once it's, uh, it's ready for public consumption, we are, the minister is going to give the statistics in public. And after that, we'll engage on the statistics mm-hmm. of, of all the, uh, the cases that IPID has investigated. It's due to the public. Yeah. Daniel, do you have any numbers of IPID investigations that have been concluded and where police officers have been found guilty? Um, I'm just asking a question for Daniil. So, so the, um, yeah, just in terms of what I've done, I, I, I haven't done anything with my career in the last two years apart from look at police oversight and criminality. And there's, there's 20 articles on, a, on the website that I publish. Um, but uh, in terms of numbers, the statistics, the, the data is critical to my work. And in terms of the conviction ratio, which is the number of convictions, IPID con- uh, criminal convictions pursuant to IPID investigations compared to the number of cases taken in, I can report that that is around one in a hundred IPID cases where the vast majority of those cases relate to criminal allegations.
Only one case or one person has been found guilty, you mean? Uh, convict, criminally convicted in court, yes. Disciplinary convictions are another are another matter. Uh, that's slightly more. It's about four in a hundred, if I'm not mistaken, four or five in a hundred. But yeah, that means 95, the ratio between conviction, criminal conviction, and intake of criminal allegation is about one to a hundred. So look, let me understand something. Are you saying that 95 cases were simply dropped, not investigated? What happened to those 95 cases? One person found guilty, four faces disciplinary action, which means stay at home for a week, you'll still get paid. What happened to the other 95? It's difficult to make a, a blanket judgment as to what happened to the other 95 cases. What I can say is that IPED um, is challenged by the fact that the National Prosecuting Authority and the SAPS's own disciplinary structures do not readily take up recommendations, do not readily and uh, vigorously prosecute these cases. Remember, prosecutors and um, police officers often work together. They rub shoulders in court. There's a reluctance, I've heard, um, anecdotally to prosecute these cases and that the SAPs also have a reluctance to be rigorous in its own disciplinary um, uptake of IPED cases. That said, I don't think we can underplay uh, the, the impact that under-resourcing and poor case management systems at um, IPED's provincial offices have in uh, rendering dockets which are not um, ready for prosecution, which are perhaps prematurely completed, as indeed my investigation yeah. showed last year was happening on a large scale across the country, and um, that people that tried to blow the whistle on this at that time were actually um, quite vigorously persecuted within okay. the organization. Guys, we're going to have to leave it at that. Ndeleka, thank you so much for making the time to speak to us. As you can hear, a number of concerns from our listeners and, of course, also Daniel. Ndeleka, thank you. Know, they, they, yeah, thank you so much. I yeah. think the challenge I have are there serious allegations hmm. that are, are unfounded and that Daniel? Uh, excuse me, they've been published. Because when he is saying, because when he is saying he has had that, there's he has had. I, I would appreciate if Daniel can say because he's apparently the researcher, and I think the research goes to it. The, the researching, as far as I understand, means they were able to find some sort of evidence, and I believe that as at some point. They cannot just be talking and talking and talking. They must no, come no. up with the recommendations and they must say, this is what they have done. Okay. My, would... my, excuse me, Yazid. My article was one of the most read and published um, impactful articles of last year. If Ms. Ndeleka Tola has not read it, it's not on me. Um, that was that was a, a year's worth of investigation went into a long form expose which was published in October last year. I think both persons have been able to present this side of this argument. So I must thank both of you for making the time to speak to us this evening on Burning Issue. Thank you guys. Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. We now continue with our conversation around what we have seen in recent weeks, particularly under lockdown, and that is police police accused of killing South Africans, in particular children. We've seen that and I've read some of that out earlier in the program when we started. We now welcome to the show Wayne Klube, and he is the acting deputy director, it says, of the Lawyers for Human Rights. Wayne, good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. 
good evening. Thank you for having me. Wayne, for our listeners who do not know what Lawyers for Human Rights is, can you please just help us understand what it is and what you do? Yes, uh, so we are a non-profit NGO. We have uh, six law, law clinics around the country. Our mission statement is to make rights real and specifically help vulnerable communities accessing their rights. So we're lawyers, we give pro bono legal services across the country. Uh So in terms of helping citizens, tell us what you've done in recent times, especially around police shootings of citizens. Yes, so uh, recently, I suppose the most recent thing we did, we were manning a hotline uh, providing uh, legal services and giving legal advice during COVID and also documenting rights violations uh, as soon as the regulations came into effect. And what we got was more than 50 different people calling in with uh, issues of police brutality uh, or unlawful conduct by police. And we normally try and uh, assist those individuals uh, help gathering evidence, opening dockets, whether it's with IPED, uh, military ombudsman, uh, interacting with the Human Rights Commission to uh, advocate for different policy changes, which we've seen in some of the more recent uh, lockdown regulations regarding police conduct and the way in which uh, the regulations are criminalized. And we've launched a lot of different applications to uh get people who have been detained unlawfully released during the lockdown. Can you please tell, like, give us an idea of some of the complaints? Uh, wh- what have they been highlighting? What has the police done, according to citizens who have phoned you on this line? Uh, so it's a, it's a wide range of uh, alleged abuses. Some of it that's been well documented and shown on the news. Uh, police uh, beating up people who... Uh, were allegedly uh, violating uh, the regulations, people that they saw outside, particularly in your less affluent neighborhoods, police shooting rubber bullets at citizens who were simply trying to go shopping, uh, arresting uh, individuals who were trying to get food or shutting down uh, spaza shops or all sorts of types of smaller shops that are not... uh, and taking away people's income, uh, everything. And when we say police, we mean all law enforcement that has been active during the, the lockdown, all the way from the army, the your more gross examples, obviously, uh, police killing individuals like Colin Koza, uh, but he's not the only individual who's been killed. Uh, at least okay. a dozen gotcha. Have been gotcha. Look, now, race is, of course, an issue in South Africa. It continues to be an issue in South Africa. Can we say the police system, or rather, can we say police brutality essentially is a problem within black and colored communities only? So, no. I, I think the, the, uh, a better statement is to say uh, issues of police brutality disproportionately affect. Uh, the black and colored communities, less affluent communities. So I think our policing is still uh, very classist and by the nature of South Africa, very racist. There's different, uh, there's different manner in which police interact with certain neighborhoods. And obviously your more affluent neighborhoods are normally where 
uh, have a higher population of uh, uh, individuals who are not black uh, or colored. And I think the manner in which we, we, the police interact with certain communities, your poorer black colored neighborhoods is akin to the same strategies that were used in policing during apartheid. And those tactics have not really evolved. And I, that, that difference is very clear. Okay. And now when we understand, when we want to look at um, IPIT now, right? I mean, do you think that IPIT is equipped to effectively deal with the police um, situation? Do they have the resources to investigate and prosecute? So I, I, I think that's a difficult question. I, I, I don't think that uh, the IPIT budget comes anywhere close enough to be able to deal with the kind of magnitude of complaints that they get any in a specific year and that forces them to prioritize different cases and it means that not all complaints uh that they get uh receive the attention uh uh that those complaints should and it's not necessarily an issue of an unwillingness from IPUD but just uh a lack of capacity. But also a lot of these complaints uh should be getting dealt with within the uh, same police stations by uh, station commanders, by provincial commissioners. And so to relegate our system towards all police accountability to come through IPED already uh, sets us up for failure. Uh, and so I think if you look at it holistically, IPED definitely are not doing enough and they're under-resourced. But the two are correlated. I think they do they do still serve an important function, and the cases that they do prioritize, I still think uh, uh, individuals get justice, but the, the, the magnitude of complaints and the cases that receive enough attention uh, is just too wide. Okay. And do you think that the police brutality has increased during lockdown? What have you guys seen? Because you've had this line as well, the open line for citizens. Uh, so I, I think it's difficult to say yes immediately. Definitely at the inception of the lockdown, before uh, there were some re- amendments to the regulations, before the Colin Causa case, before we, uh, us and a number of organizations pu- pushed for certain policy guidelines in the way in which police were operating, definitely there was a massive spike in uh, law enforcement brutality, a lot more of it coming from uh, uh, members of the military and defense force. Uh, I think the attention that was put on the conduct of them, the reaction from our judiciary and uh, the reaction from civil society and the action from uh, the executive means that those guidelines have seen a reduction in the kind of more egregious acts of brutality that we're seeing before. Uh, but on a whole, you'd need someone to do uh, some significant research to really compare that. Uh, and so I can't give you a straight answer on that. Mm-hmm. And as lawyers for human rights, I mean, in terms of citizens feeling empowered, you know, when you are a victim of police brutality and you feel that IPUD is not giving you the recourse you need, what can you do? 
yeah, so there are a number of organizations such as ours who try and help citizens uh, with situations like that. Uh, I think wherever you're not, uh, the, the state as a whole is, is not living up to your rights. Obviously, the best thing to do is seek legal advice. And for the, uh, the problem, obviously, is access to justice and access to legal representation uh, is normally expensive and normally something that's only accessible to people who are rich. And that's where we try and bridge that gap. Uh, and so I'd say try and call lawyers for human rights. Try call another NGO who works in the space. Try and approach the public protector, the Human Rights Commission, and try and see if one of those Chapter 9 institutions cannot take uh, your matter further if you can't get a private attorney. And how does one contact Lawyers for Human Rights? So we are on Facebook, we are on uh, Twitter, we have six offices across the country, we have a website, uh, and uh, our information is available. You can contact us. Uh, depending on which geographical area you are, you can just look for any of our numbers, Durban. Let's share the website. Let's share the website. That would have all the information. Yes, so that's lhr.org.za. lhr.org.za for the lawyers for human rights. And, you know, I just want to wrap off now by asking you around the police bigwigs and politicians. You know, I mean, when it comes to protecting citizens' rights, they should surely be stepping up a lot more. They should be more vocal. They should be out there really ensuring that people's faith in the police is restored. Now, how do you think they may actually be enabling this kind of behavior? I mean, we've seen in 2009 the police minister saying that the police should be out, 2019, sorry, that the police, yeah, wait, back in 2009, the police minister saying, you know, the police should shoot to kill. And that's the kind of statements that make the police or that make people think, you know, the police are empowered by politicians and the bigwigs. I mean, even going as far as high up to, as to the minister. Yes, and I think it's that sort of culture that, that treats citizens as criminals and that forgoes the due process that is in our Constitution and in the Criminal Procedure Act that gives the police the impression that they're above the law when they're not. And definitely the rhetoric of certain police ministers, certain people in the executive, and certain politicians in different political parties uh, has been deplorable and led to the situation. Uh, uh, an example, obviously, is what we've seen recently in Cape Town with some of the comments uh, by the mayor of Cape Town and the manner in which uh, the, the city's law enforcement have been treating uh, uh, citizens looking for housing. Uh, and there is a direct correlation between uh, the speech and the policies of politicians and the way in which our law enforcement essentially break the law. And it is one of the things we're trying to uh, do in holding those politicians a lot more accountable. And luckily enough, uh, we have Chapter 9 institutions who are empowered to do that and who recently have been taking up their, their constitutional powers to hold those uh, ministers accountable. Uh, uh, but last year, the Deputy Minister of Police had to issue an apology for some of his more 
uh, hateful comments uh, that he gave around the individual who live in Hillborough. And so that, that is something that we have to keep a, a watch on. And definitely politicians should do better because their words have meaning and action. Mm-hmm. Look, I just quickly want to share a feedback that has come through from a listener because I think this is something that lawyers for human rights might be able to pick up on. Now, listener 5713 has sent through quite a lengthy message. Let me get through it. She says... My husband was killed by the police on the 2nd of August 2020. That is this year. That is last month. He was then taken to the mortuary and no one and nowhere on the news was this mentioned. I only found my husband six days after he was taken to the mortuary. I have called numerous parts of the state to understand what happened and found that his case is with IPID. I need to know how I can get information as I have absolutely no idea what really happened and how he died. I need help because IPUD is now becoming frustrated with me as I call daily to know what time I am to meet them. I then get an excuse that they are too busy or this or that or the other. I am broken and stressed with the fact that I am alone with my two kids and my health is busy taking a knock because this whole thing of him being killed by the police is making me cry. I have questions. How? Why would they kill him? He could have still been alive. Did they make him a cold case? I'm a sad, lonely wife in need of answers for a husband who is no longer alive, killed by the police. Can I have a contact number of someone higher in IPAD? So this person sent the message while listening to this radio program, not getting any help with IPAD. You have said that people could contact you. Can I pass on the details so that this listener may contact lawyers for human rights? Yes, definitely. Shall I give her your number? Yes. Okay. Listener, I'm going to send you now via WhatsApp the number for this person from, he's the Acting Deputy Director of Lawyers for Human Rights, and you can call him, and they'll be able to assist you in your query. Wayne, anything else to add before we wrap up? Uh, No, I think we've covered everything. Uh, I think it's important that uh, this is involved uh, the police accountable and remember that they work for us uh, and do not lord over us so they should also be held accountable for their actions. Okay. That is Wayne, the Acting Deputy Director for Lawyers for Human Rights. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on Burning Issue. So, thank you very much. Bye. Well, now I'm going to wrap up the show. I would like to thank our listeners for being participating, uh, you know, for participating rather in the show. Shukran so much for sending us your questions and your feedback. I can see there are no calls and uh, we've interviewed all our guests. It's been quite a heated debate this evening with IPED and of course... IPAD being very defensive about their situation, and I guess rightfully so, everybody's going to defend their turf and their work. We've also spoken to researchers, we've spoken to community activists, and of course lawyers for human rights telling us exactly how they play a role in helping citizens find justice when the police allegedly acted illegally towards them. So that's the show for tonight from myself, Yazid Kamaldin. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.